Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm talking with Liz Kennedy. Liz is the author of Embracing Culturally Responsive Practice in School Libraries, published in 2023 by the American Library Association. School librarians have always connected learners' life experiences, cultures, and communities to materials, projects, and processes. As schools look to make these connections within the classroom and the curriculum, school librarians are positioned to lead and model really meaningful steps towards culturally responsive mindsets. This book celebrates how learners' cultures shape everything from their communication to how they process information, and it translates complex concepts into accessible and practical practical school library strategies while challenging readers to embrace and nurture their professional and personal growth. Liz Kennedy works as a library director in New Jersey. Liz, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Um, Before we start talking about your book, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? I'd love if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and went to school and what brought you to your work in libraries. Sure. So my name is Liz Kennedy. (laughs) Um, I grew up in North Jersey in a tiny borough of North Arlington. I went to public high school, happy. You know, our library was very small, so I didn't really think of it as a career because I didn't see it. You know, I always went to my public library, but it just didn't click for me until I was um, out of college. I went to Rutgers University. Um, And then once I graduated from there, I, you know, I was trying to find what I wanted to do because I always thought I wanted to... um, like be a book editor and work with books. So I always knew I loved story, but I didn't like the corporate feel and I didn't like how um, some stories never made it, you know, out there. They never made it to public reading and readership. So I didn't like that. So I kind of had to find what I wanted to do. And then I got a job at the public library here in Hackensack, um, where I currently live too. And as soon as I started working there, I think a month later, I decided that I was going to go for my master's in library science um, because I knew that this was this was it and this was my calling. So um, I did that um, for like a handful of years. Then I transitioned into the um, Hackensack public school system at the high school, and um, I got my school librarian certification and. I loved that and I really loved that experience and working with students and um, you know that really inspired a lot of what's in this book and why you know it's so important to me out of necessity 
But um, but yeah, so I mean, and now I'm back in public libraries as a library director, which kind of encompasses everything I learned, all my experience as a school librarian. It was really invaluable to me, um, learning about budgeting, learning about every aspect of libraries. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be out of the library world. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's so much for us to do in so many kinds of libraries. Yeah. Um, so shifting to this book, Embracing Culturally Responsive Practice in School Libraries, could you talk a little bit about how this book came to be and what your hopes and goals were for this project? Absolutely. So this came to me as kind of like a necessity. My school district um, shifted into this idea and really, I mean, they did amazing work right away. They decided we're going to really focus our energy on culturally uh, responsive pedagogy as a school district. So, you know, the they set goals, district goals. I was part of a district equity team. We met, I think, just about every other month or so. All of our PDs, we trained people. It was like a whole adventure. Um, but what didn't come with that was translation to the, to the school library. And what I did. So, like, what does that mean for the collection? What does it mean for for planning and evaluations with my supervisor? Because a lot of the things that were happening pedagogically and in the classroom with evaluations and SGOs and all of the things we have to do um, didn't translate really to what I did anyway. So it was kind of like another kind of roadblock in the way of really important work. So I loved what the work was and i love kind of challenging myself and understanding these concepts but i needed something practical um so i approached asl through you know a question and i said do you have any resources on culturally responsive pedagogy does it exist is there like a framework is there something that i can um kind of go off of specifically for school libraries and you know it is out there because i do reference heavily on practitioners who are doing the work um but for school libraries specifically they said no we don't have any publications um you know if you are interested in this i encourage you to submit a proposal and i did my research i never written a proposal before i think um really went back and forth and the editors um were amazing the ones that i worked with they got back to me they were responsive they showed me kind of how to rework what i was thinking into something that was um like worthy of you know being in a book or at least make more sense in the structure of being a book and that's basically how it came to be um you know i was very lucky i think it was the right idea at the right time um and i put in the work and i did it but it was really uh, important for me to kind of honor what's already being done and what's been done for decades because it's not my idea <laughs> it's you know it people have been doing this work but I think I'm able to make it practical and friendly for everyone to kind of understand no matter where you are on your journey yeah absolutely I mean and your your point is real that this work has been done for decades but I too have often been surprised when I have used this language of culturally culturally responsive pedagogy in, in conversation, you know, it's not familiar to everyone. It's not something that gets talked about in all the spaces we work in. And so um, even this book, just like really elevating that term, um, I think is, is doing a lot of good work. Um, and so 
I guess we should talk about what what all that um, vocabulary means. And the introduction um, to this book grounds us in what culturally responsive pedagogy is. So could you explain for listeners who might not be familiar with this terminology uh, what it means to talk about cultural proficiency, cultural responsiveness, and then culturally responsive or sustaining pedagogy? Yeah, of course. So like I said, I wanted to really honor what the work that has been done, the practitioners that spend years and years and decades um, researching this. And I couldn't just dive into like, okay, let's look at our library space. Like it, I needed some kind of foundation, um, but for it not to like bog down the entire thing. Um, so I do put all the definitions, like you said, in the introduction, I lay a good foundation and kind of understanding what it means. But um, it, barely, it basically just isn't affirming. It's like culturally affirming a practice. Culturally, cultural proficiency is a tipping point for viewing cultural differences as deficit-based to learning how to value cultural differences as assets um, on which educational experiences are built. So, I mean, it sounds very classroom-heavy, but it's in general, right? How can we really um, see cultural differences as assets? Because we all have a culture. We all bring our own experiences into the spaces we're in. Um, and I do credit, you know, the people within the book for that definition. Culturally responsive pedagogy is using the cultural characteristics, experiences, and perspectives of ethnically diverse students as conduits for teaching them more effectively. Um, that definition is from 2002. I go in my book a little bit further, um, as do a lot of practitioners who are doing it now, um, into not so... Yes, ethnically diverse, but then also um, the inclusion of different abilities, um, you know, orientations, identities. I basically explore uh, more and push the boundary of like our identities and our cultural memberships more than um, it being directly related to ethnicity and race. But those are 100% um, there too, of course. Um, culturally sustaining pedagogy, um, that is one that I don't touch upon too much because I'm the district focus on culturally responsive. So that's really what I um, drove in the point. But culturally sustaining pedagogy is really important because that kind of um, challenges all of us to really think deeper. So once you have culturally responsive pedagogy and you understand that and you kind of work with that, um, culturally sustaining pedagogy is how to keep it going. Um, it requires that our pedagogies be more than responsive um, or relevant to the cultural experiences and practices of young people. It requires that they support young people in sustaining the cultural and linguistic competence of our of their communities, while simultaneously offering access to the dominant cultural competence. So when we talk about competence, it's like the dominant cultural norm, right? That's out there because, of course. When you're in school as a student, you're you're forced to kind of blend your cultural experience and what you've been through and what your parents taught you and what you bring into the classroom with what is kind of a norm for everybody to experience, right? So everyone's kind of blending a bunch of things, but you want your culture to continue within you. So that's sustaining. And then it goes forward, like beyond what this book even is about. And you have like um, anti-racist, anti-bias um, pedagogy. You have just 
amazing things that people are researching and putting out materials for every single day. So my book is more of an introduction and a foundation to these things. Um, and then you can really explore it to wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. And I really liked how uh, you name a lot of the people who've been doing this work and and kind of describe what that work has looked like. It felt like a really um, exciting entry point to keep learning more and reading more. Um, yeah, I thought that was a great addition. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so after this introduction, there are four different parts to the book. And part one starts with, I guess, the reader, probably the school librarian. Um, and so what is the work that we need to do on ourselves as librarians before we start thinking about how our libraries can be culturally responsive? Yeah, so kind of building off the foundation um, in the introduction, building off the AASL framework that I created in the foundation, it really is then pushing to um, focus on ourselves within ourselves. So this is where I really set the tone for um, this type of meaningful conversation that, um, you know, we're having as you're reading the book, myself and the reader, but then also how you can bring that um, in the spaces that you're talking about this book, whether it's with colleagues or you're taking the practices and putting them in your, your instruction or in your spaces. What are those discussion protocols? What are those norms that we bring in and that we say, you know, let's take a pause and everything we say here, it's like one of those things, like everything we say here, we say without judgment and everything we say here, we say with respect and an open mind. Um, if you have a question, you know, say it in truth or however you want to do it. But um, it starts that kind of reflective language and that pause and awareness that I thought was really important before we push forward and start doing the work, right? So um, I wanted to give examples of how to explore our own identities um, using like this graphic I created it for um, social and personal identity gardens. And you're basically like filling in the little plots of the garden with different identity markers that you might have. And that brings forth the idea of um, a little bit deeper thinking about yourself so and where you fit in society. So something as simple as, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself now becomes like, what parts of my identity are parts that are readily visible? Um, what things go unnoticed, right? What parts do I share and what parts do I keep to myself? Um, and that can bring um, a sense of understanding and acknowledgement in just, you know, if you tend to hide something about yourself because it's not really visible, why do you do that? And, you know, what has society kind of shown you um, that, you know, that part might not be acceptable, right? And then you can have that conversation. But really, this is just for us. We need to understand um, our identities before we can really start understanding the value of other people's identities. So that goes with the idea of mindful modeling when we start talking about, um, you know, putting this work forward, um, where we bring ourselves into everything we do, right? We bring ourselves into our spaces, our digital spaces, our programs, collaboration, policy. So we really have to understand who we are before we can evaluate our spaces. Um, and 
really what we want to prioritize, right? What we want to work on as goals um, in a way that it empowers others. So I don't think you can easily, or I guess you could go to like chapter four without reading one through three. But I do think that it's valuable to start at the beginning because not only is there a foundation in the introduction, but then it also kind of works its way where you're focusing on yourself, you're understanding what identity means, what culture means, um, the different levels of culture, um, and how you bring that into the library, and then what you can change about, um, or not even change, but what how you can bring other cultures in or other perspectives into your work. Yeah, definitely. I did see that progression as I was reading, and it really felt clear to me that the work that we have to do needs to start in ourselves. And that doesn't mean we need to like figure it all out in ourselves before we start doing work with other people. But um, I thought you gave really, really thoughtful suggestions um, like that identity garden, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Um, So then, you know, moving outward from ourselves, part two starts looking at the school library. Uh, And what are some of the steps that librarians can take in their libraries to make the space more culturally inclusive? How should we look at that space with new eyes? What should we kind of examine through a critical lens to think about changing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, exactly right. Like we move from inward to outward. We start looking at the school library space. Um, And just as like a disclaimer, this entire book, none of this is meant to be judgmental at all. Um, You know, I'm not perfect at all. Um, I share the like a cultural continuum where I, at the beginning, and I say, you know, one day we might be at the end and we might be perfect or like quote unquote perfect. One day we might be in the middle, one day we might be all the way at the beginning where we're starting fresh because we had a horrible day and we said something completely irrational and just weren't our best selves. Every day is kind of like that. And I think that's a good way to think about it because we all carry bias with us regardless of, you know, how aware we are of everything. So when we start looking at our libraries, school, like our spaces, we really want to see in the most non-judgmental way you can, the idea of evaluating your space as if, you know, you're, you've never been there before. You know, as librarians, I feel like we take for granted um, what's common to us, right? Our jargon, um, you know, what libraries are in general, what they do, why they're important, uh, what all the labels mean, what the, you know, the way that it's organized. We do tend to take that for granted. So I think using these moments to, you know, take a pause and be like, all right, I'm walking into my space as if I've never seen it before. If I didn't go to library school, if I didn't walk into libraries every single day. So how can I look at my signage, right? How can I look at the, at my policy or even my sign that's on my bulletin board? Like, where's the implied, is there implied meaning? Is there unclear language? Um, that's a great place to start because it's something kind of like a a simple, um, practical thing. If you want to just update your signage, um, it's a good goal to have, right? And, and that's something like if you print it out and laminate it, so it's not something you have to buy or, uh, make or anything like that. But, you know, you want to kind of look around and I have a reflective exercise in the book where. It asks you a bunch of questions that you can ask yourself while you're walking around. But vague, outdated signage is a big thing that confuses a lot of people. Um, it may 
It may intimidate people if they can't find what they're looking for. And yes, you're there as an asset, but I think that sometimes the idea of libraries is lost on some people. And by making it easier and more understanding, that's part of being culturally responsive to your population and your students, your learners and your school, and even your colleagues, because they sometimes don't know what you do either, and they don't understand the library. So um, making it more um, just easier to experience um, also gives the learners and your colleagues and everyone who steps in the space um, a sense of ownership. And then you get advocacy, and then you get people who have buy-in in the space because they feel comfortable there. So like little changes like signage or a bulletin board or a rule that you have or something like that. It's not that you have to change everything, but just um, read it with a new perspective and really see what is it saying or am I actually saying what I think I'm saying, right? And then, you know, there's an even, that can be your attainable goal for one school year is just change all the signage. And then you have focusing on the collection, which is that critical eye that takes a longer time. Um, so I know one of the main things that I heard when I was pitching this and making the outline and really putting this forward was time. Like, where's the time? Who has time? Nobody has time. <laughs> and it's true. Um, but I think starting small really makes a big impact. Small changes make the way for bigger impact. And you can start by saying, next year, I want to look at my population. Um, next year, I want to see what identities um, are represented or take up the most shelf space, right? Um, you can look at one specific collection, one specific Dewey number in your collection. I had to do that because I couldn't change my whole collection. But I noticed that my 800s, I had a ton of amazing materials for American writers, um, our American literature and British literature, um, fantastic materials. They were, you know, probably bought a long time ago, but they were those critical texts that are really expensive. So I wasn't going to replace them. <laughs> but a lot of my population in the high school um, were from South America, like their families were from South America and they wanted to read literature um, written by uh, South American writers. And I had one book. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, we have databases, we have this. 100% agree. But when I start looking at that, I'm like, okay, what other spaces aren't being represented, like, in, in this collection? And if I can't replace all of, or I can't order a bunch of critical texts of um, Spanish writers, then maybe that's what I have to showcase when I'm demoing a database, right? because they can't find it on the shelf. So my example, when I do a database lesson now, is going to have South American writers, Asian American writers, um, people that they can't find on the shelf, right? Because it doesn't affect anything. It's just an example. It's a demo of the database. So it's like little things like that um, can really make a difference. And when you think of time, sometimes it gets overwhelming. But if if you start a little, and I, I give suggestions throughout the book on how to do this, but if you do an action plan and you're, you know, you set your goal at the beginning of the year to be one thing, then hopefully it's not too hard. But, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. And this whole book, you can't do every single thing in the framework because <laughs> that's, it's going to be impossible, you know? So um, 
starts small and it makes a big impact and it'll make a big impact in your space for sure. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciated your point that like, okay, you might analyze your collection and realize it's not representing all of the identities who use your library, but like you can't overnight have a beautifully diverse collection. It might be like, okay, I'm going to spend like whatever percentage of my budget every year on this, or I'm going to buy this many books every year in these like categories. And yeah, I, I really um, was grateful that you reminded us it's okay to start small. Yeah, <laughs> we have to. Um, and so then continuing to move outwards, part three asks us to consider the learners who use or might not currently, but hopefully in the future, use our library spaces. Uh, so when we're taking on this role of instructor within our libraries, how do we transfer the culturally responsive journey we've undertaken inside ourselves into the work that we're doing with other people? And what kinds of reflective exercises can we introduce with library learners? Yeah, so um, there's like a twofold, right? When you're using, when you're just the librarian in your school library and people are using the space and checking out books and you're not instructing at that moment, um, you know, it's about what are the rules when people walk into the library? What do they see, right? And that's kind of what we were looking at in part two. But then as for learners specifically as instructors, we have to really focus on how can we bring, you know, these big concepts into a space where we don't have time to kind of go through this whole experience and definitions and all of these things, because, you know, it's, that's not what the class is for. Um, you know, we're there to instruct on databases, I'm sure, on media literacy and things like that. But all, but then you can't think of it as, you know, exclusive, right? Um, media literacy really has um, a gritty uh, door to culturally responsive pedagogy and culturally responsive practice, even and for us especially, because we can talk about, um, you know, why do students get information from certain places and um, where they should be getting information or why those places are okay and why they're not and how to get a balanced sense so i created a chart that i shared in the book and everyone knows that i think like the kwhl um chart. um but i i added another kind of thing in there for school librarians specifically so i made it the kwwhl chart even though that's really long but i wanted to have like what do you know why why do you know about the topic um what do you want to know how will you find the information and what have you learned? So, you know, the other, the regular part of what do you know, what do you want to know, um, what have you learned and things like that, that's that's great. And I feel like that's what we're doing already. I mean, everyone does that and in all different types of content. But the why do you know about this topic, right? Where have you heard this? Who has told you about this topic? And um, you know, what have you heard about it? Have you seen it on the news? What, like all of these things, right? Have your parents talked about it? Do you see it on TikTok? What's going on? And then how will you find information is another, um, little point that really sticks out there too. Like, um, again, I would do this kind of at the beginning and then reflect back once they have the sources, um, of like more credible databases and things like that. 
because it will be really interesting to see how we find the information without it being that they think this is like academic. So how would you find like EBSCO? No, it, it'll be probably like, how would you find this information normally? It'll probably be like YouTube and TikTok and so on and so on, like Reddit and things we don't even, I mean, I don't even know. But <laughs> but if you then do this again, um, maybe after the lesson or when you start showing the databases and you start seeing the different um, examples of balanced, incredible viewpoints, then you can reflect, you know, where they started, where they ended up, and how maybe it met in the middle. And also, why do they know about the topic? It can bring up discussions of, you know, where their families get information or where they usually um, hear information from. Um, and you could talk about the different um, kind of avenues and and things like that. Um, I think in general, though, when I talk, that's just an example. That's just one of the charts I put in there. But I think in general, one of the things I put in that I thought was really important was classroom culture, which everybody tends to have. You know, you have your class rules, um, whether your class takes place in a library or you're an English teacher or something like that. But classroom culture is important. And I think bringing in culturally responsive practice really just means encouraging the learners to go through the exploration that you went through in this journey right so starting inward and sharing outward um an icebreaker like with the identity gardens where you're talking about your identities and why and you know um i i've done it already in certain groups and of course i change it depending on the age group um i don't think it's you know that's a hundred percent like please modify this for your grade level um, because people look at certain things and it's like, how would I talk about this? Like, but this is a hundred percent. All of this book is about melding it to your practice, modify it to make it make sense with what you do. So for example, the ice breaking with the identity garden, you could talk about maybe filling out just three bubbles out of all of them. What are your most important ones? And it's about just breaking down those barriers, but if you one of the bubbles says like um, language spoken at home, and maybe they wouldn't have shared that if you if you just asked like tell me something interesting about yourself, but now you get to hear you know what language they spoke at home, um, what way do they like to express themselves, um, are what kind of leadership <laughs> you know like different there's different types of things that we bring like into spaces. Um, that I think are valuable when you hear from students. And then, of course, I mean, highlighting choice is another way where this easily kind of blends together. Um, whenever there's an assignment or something, just kind of emphasizing um, their experiences and letting them pick out how to express those, um, as it makes sense, obviously, for the assignment, I think is a great way to bring culturally responsiveness into the practice. Yeah, validating like student experience and, and cultural expertise. It's just, it's exciting to have opportunities to do that. Um, I was really curious because I can imagine the identity garden and activity working really well in a school library, um, but also in other contexts. I'm curious if you've had a chance to do it with like non-school age groups. Yeah, so I actually did it um, with adults at my library where I'm the director, I did it with um, my staff. 
And it was interesting because at first everyone's like, what is this, right? Like there's too many bubbles, like there's too many possibilities. I don't know what to choose from. But really like once, and I told them, I was like, you can pick one or two, you can pick as many as you want, but minimum probably two. But none of them are like your name, you know? <laughs> like Some of them are like your musical taste, your comedic taste, um, which I think is really fun. Um, and then it goes to like um, family structure, like if you have how many siblings do you have or what does your family look like? Um, another one is because there's social identities and personal identities. One of the social ones, I believe, is, um, you know, what what are your values? What do you value most? So that's a nice one. That's what I shared with my staff, as well as some funny other ones. But it goes it goes as deep as you want it to go, and it goes as light as you want it to go. So some people really aren't comfortable sharing, you know, like their values and their value system. Um, so they share instead their musical taste. Um, but some people really appreciate kind of going or having the excuse to go that that route of being a little deeper and showing their colleagues um, something a little bit more substantial that because maybe you know your colleague for 20 years, but you've never actually shared that uh, when you grew up, your grandma lived with you or something. I don't know, like something like that just opens up um, opportunities to discuss a little bit deeper, which I appreciate. Yeah, that sounds really great. I mean, we never get to do worksheets as yeah, adults, exactly. you know, but that sounds like a really fun way to um, start conversations and make connections. Uh, so then moving on to the last part of this book, uh, you reflect on evaluation. And so how would you suggest that we evaluate the impact of this work? It's usually really subtle. And uh, what should we be asking ourselves when we're reflecting on our work? Yeah, so I think that the the evaluation part was something that, you know, the editors thought was a really good part to have because, you know, you can have all of this idea, but then how does it connect to, like I said, the SGOs? How does it connect to the the year pl the plan for the year? How does it connect to your goals? How does it connect to all of these things? And I did put a lot of thought into it. Um, it is a particularly short um section or chapter for the evaluation because i do think that everything that has been done is so much inward that we just have to really reestablish like where have we gone right where did we go from where we started um but i always always suggest that whenever you're creating any type of plan because you know you have as school librarians or at least i did i had to submit a plan at the beginning of the year what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. And I think incorporating any of these practices, any of these activities from the framework, incorporating the framework even in your plan it, or in your SGO and in your evaluative um, cycles and things like that, really um, solidify that this is important work and that this is your commitment, right, for the year. It, it could be, you know, your your goal is usually like to increase circulation, right? Or something like that, right? So how can you embed some of these activities to do that, right? Increase circulation by highlighting, um, you know, the population in a more effective way or increase circulation by um, setting aside budget to expand the 
on the collection because that's what you're getting, you know, interested or increase circulation by um, creating a small focus group with students to um, to evaluate a particular section in your library, whatever it is. But now you're taking something that, you know, has always been a goal, right? Increasing circulation. But now you're kind of incorporating the principles and the activities within the book where your supervisor, your administrator can look at that and say, okay, well, I can't really, like, I might not understand what this is, but this is part of her goal or this is part of their goal. So um, how are they doing that? What are they working with? What is this framework? What are these standards? And it might open up that conversation. Um, but like I said, you know, the, the journey is going to be different depending on how you approach it and how you modify all of these things to fit into your space. Um, but I would, I would go back. The best advice I would do is once you're at the end of, you know, the year or your planning cycle and your evaluative cycle to go back and, you know, do the challenges that I have in here, the little exercises and see how things have changed. Right. So I have a challenge about displays, um, cultural responsive displays. So have your answers changed from when you started, right? Um, so it doesn't have to be September to May or June. It could be like September to January and you do like a mid-year checkpoint with yourself. Um, but I think it's all about, you know, taking the practice and really adjusting it to what you need and making sure that you take the time to reflect with the exercises that I have here, but then also reflect on yourself too. You know, you don't, you're not stuck on these reflective practices, but you can kind of say like, okay, well, I like taking a minute and thinking about why I chose to do this assignment or why I chose to highlight this book. Um, let me take a minute and reflect on another part that maybe wasn't in the book that you do every day. So, um, I think that's the best answer I can give to kind of evaluating the subtlety of this this work. But um, yeah, I think there are ways to make this very actionable. So um, I do hope that you're able to put it in your plans and put it in your SGOs so that it doesn't just fall to the wayside, um, especially when an administrator is kind of piling on stuff. Um, you can say, okay, I can do that. Um, but in this way that incorporates the standard, the new framework I'm working with or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how evaluation is so much like the the terminology that we use and we do just have to assess things and give numbers and make reports. But actually, like a lot of the evaluation that you're describing is is like celebrating our work and celebrating the things we've done. And we don't ever think about evaluation as celebration. Um, but like when we're making those reports with all those numbers, if we can like find ways to fit in there, like celebration of the things we've done, um, that's kind of exciting and less boring than the numbers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, super. Uh, I, thank you so much for all your time today. Before we wrap up, I would really love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. Uh, I don't know if you have any new projects that have grown out of this book or anything completely new and different you're working on. Um, so I've really been looking or working on promoting the book, really talking to our 
librarians, school librarians, especially. I just went to AASL in Tampa and that was amazing because that was the first time I got to present um, with the book in hand and answer questions and and really meet the community um, that hopefully is interested in this. Um, but I have had the opportunity of working with some school district who have asked me to come in just for, you know, a PD day or a workshop or anything like that and really just explain um, a little bit about the work, but really focusing on, you know, either collection development or, you know, starting with the inward stuff, but then kind of jumping to um, evaluating the space or the framework or whatever. So that's really what I've been working on recently. Um, my next conference is ALA in Baltimore, so that'll be exciting. If anyone's going, I'm, I'll be there. <laughs> so I'll be speaking about my book a little bit more. I don't have any projects. Um, so far, I would love to, I mean, this was such an enjoyable um, experience, really researching, digging deep and writing. And that was kind of like a job all on its own. <laughs> so I took a break a little bit, but um, I'm not sure. I would love to explore something else, I think, or build off of this. Um, but it is so new that right now I'm just kind of um, sharing it with the world as best as I can, I think. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like I'm to work on um, yeah <laughs> well thank you so much for chatting today uh, i really enjoyed our conversation uh once again i've been speaking with liz kennedy author of embracing culturally responsive practice in school libraries published by the american library association my name is jen hoyer and you've been listening to new books network